Hey guys, I'm Nisha. And I'm Sophia, and welcome back to My Brother's Friend. This week, we're super excited for our guest, Anwar Bougroub, who is a Moroccan and Scandinavian founder of a brand called Bougroub. Bougroub is a genderless and contemporary brand that is changing the norms of queerness and sexuality in the Middle East and North Africa region. So in this episode, we talk a lot about how he started his brand and also how queerness and sexuality is becoming more accepted in the Middle East. Anwar also talks about his strong relationship with artisans and his views on sustainable fashion. Anwar was recently listed to Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2020 in Africa. So stay tuned for the full episode and we hope you guys enjoy. Hi Anwar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hello guys, hello Nisha, hello Sophia, thank you so much for having me. So I guess our first question, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your brand and how you started it and what your vision was. So I started my brand in 2017. Uh, I wanted to sort of fill a gap in the market, which I meant, especially in like the Arab region and stuff, like we didn't have a lot of dialogue about gender, about sexuality, and then in the fashion context. So I just felt that it was quite like, it was very commercial. It wasn't really talking to me. It wasn't really like, I didn't really feel represented. So I, I decided to take it in my own hands and start a brand that uh, sort of questions society and yeah, that wants to push it forward. So what kind of reception did your brand receive then in Morocco? In the beginning, I was really, really scared. I was very hesitant in the beginning. I was anonymous. Then it didn't work out really well. And then I tried to sort of make it a little bit more provocative or maybe a little bit more like, you know, starting a dialogue. And I was really scared, but the re- the response has been amazing, really. Like so many kids are sending me emails every day, like, thank you so much for talking about this. We really need this, you know, like nobody, like we were kind of erased and we really want change. So that's sort of also like the, the, the engine behind everything. It's like th- th- these kids that really like, they need this story and journalists and press have also just, they've loved it. And I didn't really expect it because in the beginning, like I said, I was quite hesitant about this, giving all like the cultural norms and, you know, it's like a bit like weird, but it just feels like everyone is just so ready for this kind of storytelling and this kind of universe. So how do you incorporate gender fluidity and sexuality and queerness into your actual pieces or into your aesthetic? For me, it's really about being inclusive. So I don't want to like tip neither to like the so-called masculine or so-called feminine. I just want a universe where people can just go in and buy what they see, or at least, you know, like consume it somehow. If it's imagery, if it's social media, I don't want to put labels on anything. So for me, it really just creating from like a totally free space, viewing the body as like, you know, we can have all kinds of bodies. Uh, and that's, that's also something, you know, like not all male bodies are like super square and not all female bodies are super curvy. So forgetting about those like norms and these kind of like ideas and stereotypes i just want i just create like from that point of view and it really often starts with fabrics it starts with the people that i meet when i travel like moroccans and and people from africa and then the mena region like a really like inspiring people so this is like what what's the base of the collection and obviously working in morocco with craftsmanship material is really really important so you know all the dead stock fabrics in the market the leathers you know, the colors, the artisans, it's just like um, a merge of so many stories that becomes like one collection. I love that. I think that's that's so awesome. And that's definitely something that Sophia and I are trying to like tap into more, especially with this podcast, just like talking to people 
who are more in tune with like the artisans, like you said, of those regions. So do you actually like come up with the designs and just work with these artists to like create something or are, are they your designs essentially with their materials? I mean, I've learned that the artisans are also designers. They're also creative people. So you can't just see them as like a factory or some like, like a maker. So I try to have a design more or less like, this is what I want. This is the idea. Maybe I think about like the outfit or the photo and then they help me really like improve the product and, and really work with the fabrics, the details and a lot of the, like the zipper details and stuff. It comes from them. They're like, Oh, well, do this instead. Why don't you do this? So I don't close the design process just when entering the factory. Really, it actually starts when they see the materials and they can give me the feedback and they can give me also like the ideas. And, you know, some of them have worked with like the most amazing clients before. So, you know, they have so much knowledge that I would love to tap into. And they are always, always, always improving the products, improving the collections, making things more sharp. You know, I do a lot of mistakes. They they correct them for me. So working with artisans is really a blessing. And uh it's definitely not like you would imagine because I work with fashion companies and then you just send the design and it comes, then you have a sample. But here it's a personal relationship. Like you have to know them. You might know their families. You might have lunch with them. You might have dinner with them. It's completely different, you know. And in the end, the product really represents that, you know. It represents a, a bond between people from different backgrounds. And then we, we create this thing together that we then put out on the market. And they are so proud of this product as well. And I love this so much. They are equal part of this brand as much as the models or the photographers or anyone that's really part of this universe. So are all of your pieces made in Morocco with Moroccan fabric? Yes, I mean, I try to keep it like that. I mean, it's really difficult now with COVID because I can't travel, but I really want to have everything made in Morocco. I try sometimes to make things like elsewhere. It doesn't work. Like you can tell, like you can tell that that piece didn't get the love it needed. You can see that it wasn't made by people. It wasn't made by, by people that I could relate to and that maybe related to the story. So it, it really is motivating people to create like perfect items and really like you have to put your whole soul into a bag or a jacket. You can't just like stitch it while, you know, like doing something else. You have to really love what you're doing and you really have to like also respect the person you're working with. So that's why Morocco is really perfect for me because I speak the language, I look like them. So, you know, also it's not like this colonizer idea, like we are kind of the same. So this helps super, super much. Can you tell us a little bit about like your personal background then? Did you grow up in Morocco or did you grow up in Norway? So I'm born in Norway and I'm, I'm raised in Norway, but I used to go every summer for like several months and I used to spend all my summers in, in Morocco. So already when I was young, I, we used to make to go to Morocco and, and make things. We used to make furniture, clothing, you know, because when you, when you make like a jacket, it, you have it for your entire life. Or if you make like a table, like a woodwork table, or you make like some metal work table, then that you have it for your entire life. So we were always doing these things. Once we even drove to Morocco to be able to bring some of the stuff back to Norway, it's five days of driving. So you can imagine like we were quite committed. So I was always in this kind of like craft world and I just grew up knowing that everything is possible to make in Morocco. So yeah, the craftsmanship in Morocco is beautiful. Like the the fabrics and the colors and, and everything is really incredible. So is there like, did you combine in some way like a Norwegian style or aesthetic and a Moroccan? Or are you simply just pulling from Morocco? 
I mean, I think when I went there, I realized that my aesthetic was very Scandinavian. I mean, it was very minimal. It was very like really focused on fabrics and like very few details. Silhouette was very important, you know, like big shapes and working with like, you know, like belts and tying things in, in like very minimal ways. So that is always in my background. Even if I think that I'm not Scandi, like it's always people, that's the first comment, like, oh, Scandi. But I, when you use Moroccan fabrics, when you use the Moroccan like craftsmanship techniques and stuff, that's when you really see the Moroccan part coming out of it. That's the interesting part. It's that kind of like combination, which is also maybe a little bit my background, which is like two maybe contradicting cultures and how they merge together. And that's how I want to create like the, the perfect universe. Could you like describe the differences? I know the differences are huge, but between a Scandinavian style and a typical Moroccan aesthetic. I think we can go back to like just like the economical aspect. In Norway, people can buy clothing every single day. They have the opportunity to buy from every brand and so on. In Morocco, that's more limited in terms of yeah resources, but also in terms of like the kind of stores you get. People are much more into thrifting and making things. And that creates a really unique style. So while the Scandi part is really like you get all the essentials, you have all like the, the nice pieces and, you know, everything you need in a wardrobe. The Moroccans are much more into like combining what they have, restyling it, being creative. Thrift stores are huge now and people are buying so much and that style is what I try to capture, is that kind of like effortless, but still like cool and like not too like chic or like classy, but just also I love the idea of working with what you have. So a lot of Moroccan young stylish people, they inspire me because they can wear one jacket in a thousand ways. Whilst when I was in Norway, I would maybe just buy another jacket and that's so wrong. Also from a sustainability point of view, like that, the fact that you can use things in different ways and you can give them to people and you can... You know, it's just an ecosystem, which I think is really, really in need of implementing this in the Scandinavian world. So the Scandinavian style is, is known for like minimalism, you know, like wool fabrics. It's quite cold. So, you know, it's a lot of yeah, isolating fabrics, you know, they isolate the cold and so on. And Morocco is definitely colorful, light fabrics, viscose, cottons, you know, these kind of things. Yeah, I, I also read in that article on GQ, I think it was, you know, fashion is very capitalist in a sense, or like it's become super capitalist and you're trying to bring this new kind of image to it, right? This new representation. So can you talk a little bit about that and how your brand does that? I mean, the real difficult part with fashion, it is that, I mean, from the outside, it looks like a fairy tale. And from the inside, it's like a moneymaker. It's like a machine. You have to make money. So it is very difficult also for me to navigate this in Europe and also in Africa, where you have two kind of like purchasing powers. So I don't want to exclude anyone and I also have to make money. So it's really, really difficult, that part. But there, you know, you, this is some thinking. That's why I did the mentorship program. You know, it's like involving people in the story without necessarily having to, you know, have to be so like purchase a product. That's when you're part of us. I think a lot of luxury brands, you're part of their story when you buy their bag. If you buy Gucci, you're part of the Gucci world. You know, if you buy Dior, you're part of the Dior world. But I wanted also to, to include this young generation and, you know, have this dialogue with them and, and have the ideas. And, you know, it's, it's really been amazing to turn them business model from profit to something more social. Um, so far, I think I have to do it another round and I want to include mentors for this mentorship program that I did and also have, you know, build a bigger community, have more people that I want to have conversations across, you know, like borders, across continents, you know, uh, connect the diaspora with, with Africa and so on. You know, it's an ongoing project where I'm trying to balance, you know, like making a living out of something, but also including everyone. It was a mentorship program for young fashion designers and creatives. 
Yeah, I didn't want to put like too. I didn't want like to have like you have to be this, this, and this. Okay, in the beginning, I wanted like a CV, but then I realized like okay, that's maybe it's complicated for especially young people. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna say who it's for. If you like fashion, if you want to do something creatively in fashion, uh, we can have this mentorship program and. We did maybe like 50 people or like uh, 60 people or something that we had like conversations with. And we've got, so, I mean, some people were really like quite successful and they needed help. And I was like, whoa, like I'm the one that should be asking you for help, you know. In the beginning, I wanted to to give back, but I think I'm the one to to gain from this com- these conversations because these young kids are so inspiring. Yeah, I mean, what is the art scene like in Morocco and what are the youth like are they and where do they get their creativity from and all of that the the creative scene in Morocco is booming right now there's so much happening there's so many people to keep you to keep your eyes on like everything from like designers uh, models you know like a lot of people are taking things like especially with social media now everything is much more like you know we build communities we mobilize so we can also talk about different subjects and we can talk about you know problems we have in our society so this has been really really good for Morocco and it's just thriving there are like art galleries opening all the time now with COVID obviously it's been like a huge uh, break but I'm talking just before that there was so much happening a lot of galleries a lot of exhibitions a lot of you know like artists that were launching things collections coming all the time so it's it's been really cool and I think somehow I think people are starting to collaborate more and more and I think this is a very important part because fashion is not like a solo business you can't do everything yourself. You need so many people. So you need to start building those relationships already from when you're young. And I see these people in Morocco, they're doing it. They are doing it. They're working with magazines. They are doing stuff. They're flying around. They're getting booked by modeling agencies. Things are really, really happening. It's super cool. And it's very interesting because it's very different. And it brings a new point of view. And it gives more diversity to the industry also. So, And I'm so happy to see so many Moroccan artists who take space in media also and I think, uh, yeah, Morocco has a bright future right now. Morocco, in regards to the rest of the Arab world, would you consider it to be a more progressive Arab country? And do you think that's why, if so, do you think that's why your brand was so well-received? Yeah, even if it's like the, the audience is mostly Moroccan, but there are so many people from, actually, the biggest audience that we have is actually France from all the diaspora kids, from Lebanon, from Tunisia, from Algeria. Like these people, they also connect with the story. So I think North Africa in general and with uh, Lebanon and also Jordan, I think these are the countries that are pushing the boundaries. The young people, they're taking so many risks. Like I'm so proud and inspired by these people that take the risk and really dare to have a dialogue because it's also taboo. So I think Morocco is not unique in that sense. I think, like I said, Tunisia, they're probably more progressive than, than Morocco. And also uh, Jordan and Lebanon, I think, are having really like cool, creative people. Obviously Dubai also, but I think it's a different story because I prefer to, to think like Lebanon, Morocco, Tunisia and Jordan, maybe as like the, the hubs to explore and to find young creatives that have like super unique point of views that needs to be heard. Yeah, definitely, I'm sure. And that's kind of like what our one of our last guests, Joe, actually was definitely conveying to us as well. But I think this concept of you're kind of targeting the diaspora, right? So I guess North Africans who live in various countries throughout the world, throughout Europe. So do you feel like it is very easy to connect with them? And that's one of the main reasons why you can kind of gather that audience. And then also, are you trying to reach an audience beyond that kind of demographic. I'm too scared to talk about other people's cultures, but obviously I see people in Pakistan, they're getting engaged. I see people in Sudan, 
lots of people from Sudan, South Africa. So, I mean, the de demographics of things are not really that important. The, the most important thing for me is not to ap appropriate things. So I can only talk from my point of view and maybe other people can think that that can apply to them. But I mean, maybe I started something that was meant to be for maybe like Morocco, but then it exploded in the Arab world and Africa also where like, okay, we, this is something that we can relate to. Diaspora kids, you know, from all backgrounds, even like Palestine, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia. I think because we all have one thing in common is that we want change. I think that's like the common factor. So we have also the factor that we have, it's taboo to talk about it or it's taboo to, to want change. We don't even have the vocabulary sometimes to explain how we want our lives to be because of like, you know, language differences and language barriers and so on. So that's what I hope my brand can just gather people and from any, whatever background, but I would always take the Moroccan side of it just because that's where I'm from. That also for me has been a amazing portal to just listen to someone in Botswana and they compare themselves, someone from Nigeria, they will be, oh, this is, this is similar, this is different, you know, and then you can see and you can develop these relationships. In the end, you know, with social media, everything is so global. Like, it doesn't really matter. We just have one purpose right now. And I think we see this in, like in Nigeria, we see it now, like with the, with the riots and stuff. We, people want change. And if we make that our common, like, battleground and, like, a collective liberation for everyone, and in terms of gender, sexuality, race, I think that's the mission. And that means it can be from anywhere, really. Could you speak a little bit on the way that gender and sexuality and, and queerness has been received in the Middle East? What has the progress been, at least, I guess, from a Moroccan perspective so far? I mean, it's still quite taboo. It's illegal in many countries and so on. But what I'm seeing is like, especially again with social media, people are taking risks. They are risking their lives, like straight up risking their lives to change change the world. And I think one person inspires the other. One person inspires the other. It's like, you know, you see male makeup artists, you see like, you know, lesbians coming out on social media, you see things happening. It's because of representation. Because before we didn't have any channels to really see different people. And I think everyone benefits from this in the end. I always go back to it, like the collective liberation. Like if we free queer people, if you free women in our societies, everyone will benefit from this. And for the first time I see media in the Arab world, they are they are using like terms that are like correct and they're inclusive and they are really talking like someone, let's say like an artist is open about their sexuality and then they still do an interview with them. You know, we are seeing more and more representation. This empowers the community. And it also builds bonds between the countries, which I think is very important. I think it's important that in Morocco, you know what's happening in Jordan and you know exactly that, you know, what happens in Tunisia, what happens in Algeria. We need to have, we need to know. I can see progress. It's slow, but I see progress. That's great. And that's, it's great to see like the fashion world incorporating into that as well in that narrative, especially through, so like our podcast is kind of focused around streetwear. And I don't know if you would consider your brand streetwear or not, but we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about if streetwear has made its way into like Morocco or even in Norway. I'm sure there's like a streetwear scene, you know, in both places, actually. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, in Norway you have uh, a streetwear scene, but I think it's more like back to like the minimalistic pieces they love. And also in terms of like uh, weather, you know, you have to wear your like puffer jacket and so on. So I think these kind of like classic streetwear pieces, they are quite, quite present. And in Morocco, I think what's happening now is that because people want to be stylish, they want to be cool, they want to consume, but in a sustainable way, the thrifting part creates this whole like streetwear scene that is amazing, you know, like the way people combine things, the way they style it, and then 
when they photograph it in Morocco, also it's like a uh, a new kind of street style with which is which is more like based on using what you have and using like the nature around you and being inspired by you know your local scene. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, that sounds a lot like what our very first guest actually said, who was from Cape Town. Just about everybody kind of like using what they have with you know the little resources that they do have, and that's like awesome and repurposing things. No, so yes, that's really cool. I think it's from a sustainability point of view, also like the environment. I mean, this is such a perfect model of consuming. I think this is really, really important, and that's like really for me. These are people are my role models. Like I want to incorporate, for instance, denim into my collection, but denim is, you know, if you make one sample of denim, it, you know, you use so much water, but these kids have inspired me to tap into like using vintage denims and reworking them. And you can you know, work with paint, fabrics, embroidery. You know, there's so many things you can do. And yeah, it's very, very cool. I just I feel like sustainable fashion and that whole scene is something that I don't know if people think of it as a trend or not. But it's like when you actually think of how massive the effects are of fast fashion and all of that, like it's kind of overwhelming for some people, I think, and they just don't want to buy into it at all. And then that's how they keep buying fast fashion. But it's like it's true. It's such a big, big, big problem. And it's like requires like change from everybody in order for it to make a difference. Yeah, and I mean, clothes are so cheap nowadays, and you know, it's like it's so accessible. And I mean, just fashion in itself is just not sustainable because it's built on so many practices. And the way fashion brands operate today, like no fashion brand is sustainable. Um, that's just how it is. That's that's the, this idea of fashion is creating things we don't need. If if we need clothing to cover our bodies, I think there are many other ways we could do that, and we didn't we wouldn't have to change as many times. But in terms of producing all these huge quantities and the sales and the things that get burned and, you know, like, it's just, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. So what would be your advice to people who love fashion? They love trying out new styles and things like that, but they are just very much bought into fast fashion because they want the newest things. If you can divide clients or like customers into like people that, that buy luxury brands and people that don't buy luxury brands. If you don't buy luxury brands, vintage is amazing. Thrifting, you know, getting stuff from your friends. If you have something that you don't want to use, give it away to someone. Use what's already here, like use the things we have. If you have a blanket that you don't want to use anymore as a blanket, see if you can make it into something. Maybe it becomes a scarf, maybe it becomes, you know, the fabric for a jacket. If you live a place where you could use tailors and work with them, like try to be creative with your things. And, and that also gives work to your local community, which is really important. And if you consume luxury brands, I think consume way less and consume more mindful and tap into this world of like vintage and, you know, see if that's something also for you. Because I think like, Brands have such value for people, like a Prada bag is never the same as a vintage bag. But how can we together create this kind of style that is cool, that is okay, that it's nice? Maybe you can incorporate younger creatives into making your things and it's quite complicated. How have you tried, I guess, with your brand? Like, what are the challenges that you face with trying to be sustainable? For me, material is like the, the minimum quantity. So I'm quite lucky with that. So I just buy the minimum and then I create and then it sells out in maybe six or eight weeks. So that model works really well for me. I don't want to sell things on sale. I will never put anything on sale. Um, I'd rather archive it and then use it for another purpose, but I will never put it on sale. That's very important for me that people don't feel that they buy something from from my brand and then that it, six months later, it's worth like half price. I don't want to do that. So that's really important. And also to, from the production point of view to just produce what I need, 
with the stockists and with the retailers, you know, they, they want a lot of things, but I mean, I always have to like, no, 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 you have to compromise. If you are going to sell this, I can give it to you. If not, I can't send you quantities that you will put on sale or possibly send back. So it's like, you have to put this in every practice. The benefit for us is that we don't have stock. We don't have, we, we carry very little stock. So that's already part of our strategy to not really have like thousands of bags and jackets. And, you know, like we just want unique pieces. We want to give an experience rather than like just mass produce things. So you guys are online then only. Yes. And we sell through some stockists in, in Norway and in Morocco and in some places uh, like dropshipping accounts. I'm launching, uh, I'm launching with a couple of like, how do you call them? Online retailers. Because that's also very smooth for us and them. It's like we have more control over stock um, because in a, sh- in a shop, like a physical brick and mortar store, you need to actually put the, th- the items and they need to be styled and whatever. Online, it's much more like you can still have less of each item and you just send them whenever they need. Online is definitely the future also in terms of sustainability because before you have to sort of like present a collection and, and convince the customer that you have enough of everything. Now with one photo, you cover that need. So that's really, really good. So how has COVID affected your brand if you're all online? I mean, in the beginning, we got some online orders, actually. Like people just wanted to buy things, I guess. But I think the, mo- the biggest challenge for me has been to travel to Morocco and work with the artisans because I haven't been able to travel that has been really, really difficult and, and the uncertainty is really, really like, oh, it's difficult. So I'm also thinking of like, how can I operate in a way where I'm not depending on traveling, but I don't want to, you know, remove that component from my brand. So really trying to think about how I can do this and maybe have a small team in Morocco that can help me. And now I'm working only with freelancers, but maybe there should be someone that's working more permanent. So it's definitely been really, really challenging. But on the same time, like people haven't been selling that much. So I haven't had to produce so much either. Interesting. So you haven't been able to travel to Morocco since COVID hit. Yeah, since February, I haven't been in Morocco, which is like dramatic for me. But I have to go the next couple of weeks because now I have like a list of things that I have to do and I have to do them in a couple of days. So I like, it's just crazy. Everything is on hold, basically. So how have you been dealing with that, I don't know, mentally, that kind of like limbo and you being in lockdown and not being able to go to Morocco? It's been so, so stressful. I mean, it's been really, really difficult. And also just like, okay, like, is this it? Like, is it over now? Like, have I, do I have to close down everything? It's really, if you're depending on traveling and you can't do that, it's like, well, what do I do then? But uh, now things are going a little bit better and I've just realized that I have to be patient and I can do other things, you know, I can work with other stuff. I can plan, I can optimize things. So it's also been good to have a break and to really think about like where this is going. Because uh, at one point I got lost because I launched and it just went very quickly and it just went, you know, just bam, 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 bam. And, and then all of a sudden you're like, what am I doing? Like, where am I going with this? You know, is this the, on the way to become this like money machine or do I want it to be something more creative and more purposeful? So I took a step back and really kind of, I think I'm trying to figure out like where to position position my brand and what I want from it actually. So one question that we like to ask everyone is, do you have any local brands that you want to share that you think are doing like really cool things or have cool missions in either Morocco or Norway? I have actually a lot of my Moroccan friends, actually most of these people are my friends. I have a friend, Kal Hamza Gilmus, which is really, really cool. He's been doing so well lately. 
And as, there are like also like three makeup artists, which I think they're like queer makeup artists, male makeup artists. They are Moroccans. They are based in Morocco, a little bit out, everywhere. One is called Abdouz in Istanbul. Um, one is called Vanity Dusk, and one is called Eddin. And these guys are literally pushing society forward. Like they are dragging it, you know, forward. I think everyone should check them out. I don't know if you know the brand Zine. They make all these amazing shoes crafted by women. They are also really, really cool and important to look at. And then there's one photographer, which I love. His name is L'Artiste. He's from Marrakesh. And, you know, he just shoots amazing, amazing photos. He's, uh, you have to check him out. Are there any misconceptions about Morocco that you want to, I guess, debunk? Morocco is post-colonized country. So, I mean, there's so many things we have to work on. But one thing that I think I would remove is that this idea of maybe like that Moroccans can't do things or that they're not capable or that you have to have a Western person doing it. And then especially then French people, they, they have to come in and do it for you. And I worked with both Moroccans and foreigners. And I must say that the, the, the level is the same. I mean, there are so many cool people and creative people that you can work with in Morocco. And I'm just, I hope people start realizing this, you know, because it's really annoys me that a brand shoots their campaign in you know marrakesh and then they bring like a spanish person or something to shoot as a model and i'm like why don't you use local creative it's cheaper it's better it's easier you know believe in the young generation they're super cool they're super open-minded they are not like homophobic misogynist people like that we might kind of put as a stereotype especially in all arab countries i think now it's like really a young generation, they want change, they're super cool, and they're capable of everything, you know. So I hope people start believing in the local creatives. That's exactly what one of our previous guests was saying. She's from Gaza, and she was saying that there's this idea that, especially like within the fashion world, but in all other outlets as well, that Arab creatives need to be recognized by Western media. And that recognition means more than, I guess, local recognition. It is true that the Western world is kind of infiltrating the Arab world and with Vogue and Vanity Fair and all of these publications, and that's how you get this recognition. But that there's this internal recognition within the Arab world that kind of needs to come out. Yeah, and like this Vogue Arabia, they put like Khloe Kardashian or something or Courtney like yeah, or someone. Yeah, exactly, which In makes the no mid- sense. It makes no sense. And it's like you have yeah. this huge pandemic going on. Everything is on hold. You know, people are trying to survive. You have everything that's happening in Lebanon, everything. Like, are you going to tell me that you didn't find one person, one woman story that was more relevant for us to read about than a Kardashian? I mean, I know it's complicated. I know there's a lot of advertising involved in this. But, you know, like you said, uh, I'm really, really tired of this idea that, like, you know, you need someone from outside to do it. Obviously, like, you know, there are some, like, photographers and stuff. They get all the good jobs. And obviously, they're going to develop and become better and become more famous. And they're going to grow. So if you don't give chances to people that are in the region, then then they will never grow. Start using local people. Are you shooting in Jordan? Well, I can give you a list of 20 people that will make your shoot look amazing, you know? Yeah, I really, really hope that that changes because Nisha and I have found so many like incredible brands in the Middle East, not just in the Middle East, like we talked about when we talked to someone in South Africa. And it's true that there's so much out there that I think a lot of people just don't know about. And social media is helping for sure. There's a lot of people out there that really, really deserve a chance. Yeah, I mean, just look at Black is King with Beyonce. I mean, if she wouldn't use all the creatives in Africa, it would just be another boring album. But it was so relevant and so cool because she, you know, 
She used Nigerian designers. She used, you know, like dancers from all Africa. And it was amazing. You know, it was, it felt so relevant and it felt like, okay, this is what we need. Are there any, any musicians, whether that be Moroccan, Nigerian, just musicians or music that you like in general? Oh my God, that's a really good question. I think this woman, I think she lives in the US. Her name is uh, Abir, Abir, A-B-I-R. She's popping. And also Dunya is really, really cool. And if you want some queer, really cool people, there's like a group called Kabare Shikhats. They're so cool. They, I mean, it's difficult to explain, but they dress up like really, really cool female characters. They're doing it quite well right now. They're traveling to Europe and they're doing like tours. Oh, and congrats on your Forbes 30 Under 30 nomination, or you're, you won actually, right? It was more than a nomination. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was, uh, thank you so much. Uh, well, that was crazy in the middle of the pandemic. You know, it's just like, that was maybe something that kept me going a little bit. That was just like, I just, I remember I just gave up. I was like, okay, like they're talking about closing, traveling for another year and whatever. I'm like, okay, and I'm done, you know, like, what else can I do? Like, I like to write and, you know, these kind of things. And then the editor sends me an email. She's like, hey, like, you're listed. And I'm like, her name is Karen. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like this is exactly what I needed. Yeah. So, <laughs> so cool. Did you ever imagine yourself, like, getting a nomination like that or anything? No, and I'm like, I also want to be like, are you sure that, like, <laughs> Forbes, like, you are, like, and that everyone thinks I'm very, very rich right now, by the way, because they do this, like, rich list also. Right, Forbes, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so people think, so some people think I'm, like, one of the richest 30-year-olds in Africa, but that's maybe okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like Forbes, definitely, whenever anyone gets on that list, I think people automatically assume that they just are, like, covered in money because of it, but that's just not true. <laughs> No, that's not true. I, yeah. can, I can guarantee you that. But the cool thing, or well, the most amazing thing was, I mean, I've always tried to link Morocco more to Africa because I think it's Moroccans, of course, we're maybe mostly Arab. We, we identify mostly with Arab culture. But if we can tie bonds in Africa as well, I think that's such a huge advantage. And a lot of Moroccan culture, actually, we have so many similarities with other, other African cultures. But with the Sahara, you get this divide, you know, it's like North Africa and Sub-Saharan. And I think it's like, come on, like, it's not really. And in Morocco, I met, read a lot of people from Senegal and they were like just blending in. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, these are actually our neighbors. It's not just MENA as North Africa, Middle East. I mean, it's all Africa. So I was also the only one that I think was from North Africa. Everyone else was sub-Saharan on that list. But it's also like just tied Morocco to like also the African part because we have a very complex identity and it's important yeah. to, to claim all of it. No, that's that's so true. I mean, when I studied abroad in Cape Town, they would always were just, it's always sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm, I mean, I'm not like the most familiar with African history and things like that. So I learned a little bit of it, but I was like, how are you just going to completely cut off North Africa from Africa? You know, I, there's definitely has to be some connections there. So that's interesting that you bring that up. There's so many similarities, but I thought that we, maybe the Arabs were more like, no, we're not African. But then I traveled a little bit in Africa and, and they can refer to me like sub parents can refer to me as a white person and i'm like wait what i'm not white you know it's like what but then you realize like it's, it's both ways you know just strengthen the relationships and then we also admit that we are we have more things in common than what like divides us so that's really been cool with the forbes africa thing is that sort of also just i got this confirmation as well and we just can't thank you enough for hopping on this call with us this was so fascinating so thank you so yeah. much it really was. We were super excited to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. So and I feel so honored. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, really, really, thank you so much. I mean, I'm the one that should thank you guys. Oh, my like, God. Really. <laughs> oh, my God. No, no are you kidding? Absolutely. 
<laughs> we're two college students. <laughs> I know. Sitting in our dorm. <laughs> no, but I mean, this is really cool. I, I love your podcast. I can't wait to check out the other episodes. Like, I mean, I've checked out, I think, one. And it was really like, okay, that's why I was like, hell yeah, I want to do this. Like, you're really, really good. You're filling a gap. I think this is very important. I think you're doing something very, very nice. That means so much. Thank you. So that concludes this week's episode. Thank you, Anwar, for being here. And thank you to all of our amazing listeners for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to check out our Instagram just to stay up to date on our new guests and new events that we're doing, IG Lives, things like that. Um, and we appreciate all of your support. So thank you, guys. 